Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. The Islamic regime in Tehran does not derive its legitimacy and authority from popular support. It claims divine backing, but just in case relies on brute force through the Revolutionary Guards Corps and other military, security and police organizations. Nevertheless, the problems endemic to Iran's economy and exacerbated by the sanctions imposed on its exports and investments have enhanced public dissent. It is also obvious that China's preference for buying cheaper oil from Russia, which needs the money due to sanctions related to the conflict in Ukraine, has come at the expense of Iran. And because of the regime's malign activities throughout the region, the RGC's business and industrial uh, empire is suffering, making the delisting of the guards a major stumbling block on the road to reviving the 2015 nuclear deal. To explore these issues, we're joined from central Israel by Dr. Meir Javed Anfar, Iran lecturer at Reichman University. Thank you for joining us, Meir, and congratulations on your PhD. Thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Indeed. Also joining us here uh, in the studio, our Colonel, retired Colonel, Dr. Iran Lehrman, who is the co-host of TV7 Middle East Review, Powers in Play co-panelist, uh, JISS, uh, Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune. As Thank always, you. a pleasure, as well as Mr. Amir Owen, TV7 Editor-at-Large and host of TV7 Watchmen Talk, Powers in Play, and so much more. Amir, give us a, a broader understanding uh, on the current situation in Iran. Uh, the regime is under significant strain, not only from the outside, obviously, with uh, international sanctions biting, uh, at uh, the regime's economy and capability to maneuver, but also at the public disdain, which is becoming uh, quite significant with uh, all of the images that emerge from, from the, within the Islamic Republic. So over the uh, last week, uh, the uh, regime uh, has been uh, focused, uh, to some extent at least, on the assassination of uh, a senior officer in the IRGC um, early uh, last week. And uh, the regime has lost face because this is not the first time uh, that uh, such uh, assassinations uh, have taken place uh, within Iran. But this is probably the first time it is not a scientist or an engineer or anyone involved in the uh, nuclear enterprise, but rather an IRGC uh, key official. And it, of course, brought to mind what uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said almost a year ago upon assuming office, that from now on, Israel is going to take the war back into the Iranian homeland. So one may obviously interpret uh, this uh, action as, uh, as part of that um, uh, campaign. Now, um, this comes on top of the regular domestic woes, both societal and uh, economic. However, when one looks at the World Bank report, the latest one, the um, uh, outlook for Iran is not that gloomy. Um, they are, of course, suffering especially now 
that because of the uh, Ukraine war, Russia uh, was forced to sell its um, energy products uh, for a cheaper, for a, a lesser price. And therefore, China has decided to buy from Russia rather than Iran for the uh, time being. But the Iranian economy has been chugging along. Uh, it has not collapsed. Uh, nevertheless, it is uh, looking forward to the benefits of a renewed nuclear deal, especially because the IRGC, um, they have a lot of businesses, investments, factories, and they stand to uh, gain from uh, the renewal of the deal more than the population at large. It is important to note, however, that the uh, Iran, uh, excuse me, the Russia-China pipeline is not yet erected in full. Therefore, uh, the consequences of the 30-year agreement between Russia and China on uh, the sale of uh, natural gas and other minerals, of course, uh, will become much more straining on Iran's economy once that pipeline is erected. Uh, I'd like to ask you, Dr. Javanfa, when we're talking about uh, the assassination that uh, uh, Mr. Owen referred to, as well as the various challenges uh, with regard to popular uprisings that we're seeing throughout Iran, uh, to what degree does this indicate uh, a certain fragility from uh, the regime's perspective? And may this increase a certain fuel uh, to the fire when we're talking about um, various elements within Iran who do seek regime change? Well, um, what we see in Iran today is, is basically the failure to manage the country. The, the most serious threat facing Iran today is not Israel, it's not the United States. It's basically the failure of uh, President Raisi to manage the country's economy. Um, he's not offering any long-term solutions. Uh, inflation is at, at a running at, for example, last week, an Iranian uh, deli owner, he, he basically filmed the price of milk in his shop, him having to double it, double, uh, within a single day. Uh, and there is no line on the horizon in terms of when this is going to get better. The Iranian press are not offering new hope regarding where the nuclear talks are going to go. Mr. Raisi has said that he's going to carry out um, some important yet painful economic reform. You know, for example, for reducing um, the subsidies that Iranians receive. Uh, some of them are already being reduced in, in terms of who is receiving them. Um, although these are necessary, in, in reality, they are necessary because Iran's economy is very subsidy reliant. But the problem is that, number one, it's not being managed properly, as with many other issues. And number two, and this is the key issue, the people of Iran don't have uh, any faith in terms of, OK, the subsidies are being cut in the name of saving the economy, in terms of saving the money. But who is this money that is being saved going to go to? And this is one of the major issues that um, the, the Raisi uh, uh, administration, unlike the Rouhani administration, is not staffed with people who have PhDs from the United States. Most of, his, most of the people on his, around him, if there's one university that most went to, is, was the, is the Imam Sadr University in Tehran, which is where the regime sent its loyalists and Basiji and IRGC officials to get their PhDs. 
and to get the masters. And it's not thought very highly of in terms of uh, economy and in terms of domestic issues. So if I can, can put it in one sentence, that the, the government and the regime both are not offering any kind of any solution or more importantly, any hope that there's going to be a new change in around the uh, on the horizon. And I think this is fueling the anger among the Iranian public. And this is why we see outbursts of uh, small um, uh, demonstrations around the country. Indeed, uh, Dr. Lerman, when we're looking at past uprisings, uh, whether they are in 2009 or 2012, uh, the Obama administration at the time did not really back the people other than vocally at least so, with uh, maybe some outreach, but not uh, that significant that really uh, provided them uh, the assurances needed in order to bring about uh, potential change within Iran uh, and avoid a not only regional but global escalation from from source that nobody wants to even um, uh, discuss to a, a broader extent of the causality thereof. To what degree do you see now, um, not only the United States, but Europe and, and other countries looking to those people who are crying out uh, for help and are saying, uh, we had enough? Is this something that can uh, materialize into something? Uh, let, let me first observe, observe that this is not going to be a linear event. Um, the day the Iranian regime will face a major challenge, not a series of local demonstrations, can come very suddenly or can not come at all. There is no easy way to predict the, the, the nature of such um, revolutions from below. It caught all of us in surprise, uh, by surprise in 2011. It caught the regime by surprise in 2009. There were massive demonstrations in 2019. Um, once there is, um, let's say, a critical mass of pressure that brings together Islam Shahar, the, the southern suburb, the poor southern suburb of Tehran, uh, the periphery, which is increasingly restive, uh, also along ethnic lines. Some of the powerful unions, we saw some, some strikes, significant strikes recently. Uh, when uh, I think it was uh, Tom Friedman who called it a, a perfect storm. When all of these come together, then the key players in the West, uh, Biden above all, Macron as the leader of European policy, the British, who always had a, a finger in the Iranian pie, uh, may need to f uh, face some very interesting decisions. Now, Obama in 2009 was under an obligation as a result of his correspondence with Khamenei, the indirect response, not to intervene in Iranian affairs, to abandon the concept of regime change. I don't think the, a similar obligation exists for the Biden administration. I think there are two schools of thought there. Those who believe that in the, Iran can be mollified and that the deal is very important. And of course, any American intervention in Iranian affairs would be very disruptive to the slim hope of rescuing the JCPOA. But there's also, I think, a strong school of thought 
mainly in the uh, armed forces, the, the Department of Defense, elements of the intelligence community, who clearly see Iran as an adversary, who still see Iran as an adversary. And in this sense, there's a commonality of perception also with Israel. If they, in the future, and we cannot predict at what point this will happen, um, face the dilemma whether or not to lend support to a powerful movement within Iran, they may push, may push Biden in that direction. And I think this is one of the results why Biden has made, the, so far has made the choice not to delist the IRGC. It's not just Congress. It's not just American public opinion. It's certainly not only Israeli and pro-Israeli pressure. It is embedded within the American establishment. Mr. Olin? Um, on, on that uh, last point uh, that Iran raised, uh, we have seen all of a sudden uh, a delisting action on the part of the Department of State having nothing to do with Iran. They uh, uh, collected five organizations from around the world, including Kahana Chai, a Jewish one. Uh, and um, all of a sudden, the uh, State Department announced that following uh, a review of these organizations, um, it was found out that recently they have not acted in any terrorist fashion, and therefore they are being delisted. This looks as uh, part of a preparation for an announcement that more such organizations are going to be delisted, including the IRGC, but not the Quds Force, which belongs to the IRGC, but is only part of it. So we will have to wait and see. But it looks as if they are telegraphing if our audience still remembers what the telegraph is. Now, um, and it is important to note, however, uh, the Israeli defense establishment is not happy, not about the Khan Chai delisting, nor about the RGC potentially being delisted. Of course. Now, um, another uh, point which uh, has to do with uh, strikes and other problems uh, um, having to do with the Iranian industry is that now, with various cyber capabilities, one can cause a strike from afar. One can cause a shutdown of various facilities, which will then raise uh, popular anger. So this is probably something to be uh, considered. And lastly, there is no personality around which the dissidents can coalesce. There is no Khomeini uh, as a counterweight to the Shah. There is now no student or labor leader, Elech Valenza or whoever, uh, who can uh, be a magnetic, a charismatic leader for the protest movement. Indeed, uh, Dr. Javed Anfal, do, do you see uh, within uh, what you hear in, in Iran at large and Tehran in particular, uh, a certain call on the international community to assist in those uh, protests, or is this uh, purely domestic uh, in its orientation? Um, to be honest with you, um, in terms of, uh, I think what people from, you know, from what I read in the social media, etc., is what they want, they want, they want their voices heard in the international community. 
But in terms of wanting foreign help, um, apart from political pressure, there's not much that the West can do um, in, in terms of uh, bringing change inside Iran. Change has to come from within. It has to be, it has, this has to come from the people of Iran. And um, right now, you know, the, the, the problem is that the, the, the economic problems are so backbreaking uh, that people are mostly focused on on their own uh, on basically surviving every day and sometimes when you have to survive every day you don't have time to um, you don't have time to go and demonstrate you don't have to go uh, you don't have you can't take the risk of going to demonstration and getting fired let's not so, so at this point we can do a compare and contrast why did so many people for example during the Shah decide to go on strike and, and to demonstrate. Were they not poor? Yes, some of them were poor, but Shah made, you could say they made the mistake of actually saying that he would continue to pay the wages of the people, that, especially at the oil sector, even when they were striking, so that they could afford to strike. But today in Iran, people are very concerned about losing their jobs. They're very concerned about losing their livelihood. There are so many challenges. There's also the brutality of, brutality of the Islamic Republic. At the same time, I have to say that al although um, the, the people seem to be unable to do bring much change, there are fight in, there is infighting within the security establishment in Iran. A case in point, recently uh, one of the children of uh, former IRGC chief, former IRGC uh, Air Force chief, Mohammad Bagher Alibaf, who is currently the speaker of the Majlis, he went on a shopping spree in Turkey. And, the mm -hmm. whole, and while he was in Turkey, he was filmed while he came back to Tehran with 20 suitcases. He was filmed and this was all broadcast. Now I can assure you that if any independent Iranian uh, journalist would have done this, he's, he would have been in serious trouble. But of course, this wasn't done by an independent Iranian journalist. It was done from within the security establishment. I think it's done within the, the IRGC or the Ministry of Intelligence. Because there is in, the infighting is increasing and it's becoming more brutal. Why? Because the resources are shrinking. There's less money to go around. And when there's less money to go around, there's more infighting over what remains. And, and I think this is an interesting area to watch, that, that the infighting is reaching unprecedented terms. And uh, they're even filming family members going abroad of other regime officials. And, and I think that tells us that there is more instability underneath the service that is slowly sometimes coming to view. Jonathan, may I ask uh, Dr. Javandafar a question? Please. Is there any ethnic or national aspect um, to uh, whatever is going to happen uh, within the population? We always hear that only uh, half of the Iranian population is Persian mm -hmm. by origin, one quarter Azeri and other minorities. Baluchis and... But Iranians are, Amir, Iranians are intensely patriotic and nationalistic. And um, if there is, for example, if there's an, if there's an uprising or separatist movement in Iran, um, even at this time, by any of the ethnicities, I think the people would be willing to put away their hatred for the regime just to make sure that Iran does not split up. This is something that is a trauma Iranian Iranian historic trauma that has accompanied many Iranians. And I think this is something that could rally the people around the flag. Because any attempt for by any of Iran's ethnicities to break away from Iran would be viewed as for a negative foreign intervention in Iran's domestic affairs. And I think uh, this is something that would actually bring people be behind the regime to make sure that it doesn't happen. 
Not to forget, of course, that Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader himself, is a Zeri, indeed. Uh, Dr. Leoman, I'd, I'd like to hear your perspective on the infighting in Iran. Uh, of course, this has been going on for quite some time, but uh, it seems like uh, the financial challenges that this regime is faced with uh, are taking a toll, contrary, of course, to the repeated and unrelenting claims by the Biden administration that the maximum pressure campaign is not yielding results. It seems to be to the contrary. The, the very fact that an ideologically oriented individual like Raisi went uh, to ask permission to negotiate tells you that the sanctions do work. Um, moreover, the IRGC as the power behind the throne, so to speak, in Iraq, is an economic empire. The bunyads of the IRGC are basically the most uh, significant uh, economic entities in the country. And so, yes, I can imagine that as resources contract, um, there is increasing infighting. We could, we could sense the level of, uh, let's say, deprivation when Hezbollah in Lebanon, instead of relying on Iranian largesse and, and serving uh, the, Iranian, the Lebanese people, started stealing like everybody else from the Lebanese public uh, coffer. And was unable to pay its ally Amal. From what I heard, it was about $2,000 during Iranian uh, financing uh, to $50 a person, which obviously was yeah. not... It tells you quite a lot about yeah. the uh, real duress under which the Iranian regime finds itself. Mm -hmm. uh, indirectly, but very significantly. So, uh, but this now, was not in doubt. The, the sanctions caused the regime in the 2015. And the sanctions are still there. Indeed. And they're still there. Moreover, and here I think we may see dramatic effects, the world as a whole is looking at a food crisis. I don't know if you saw the front page of uh, The Economist with the three sheaves of wheat made of, of dead skulls. Uh, that, that, I think, is a pretty alarming way for a very conservative publication to tell us that something bad is coming. Now, Iran is not self-sufficient in grain. And so, and, and However, it's also very reliant on India and as well as on Russia and, and, and Ukraine. And the Indians are on the verge of, of uh, disallowing uh, grain export. They already did. Uh, actually, in fact, so so the, 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 we are looking. We are looking at yeah. some things that could. This is no longer the chicken in the pot for northern Tehran. It's the basic bread of uh, of of livelihood for the poor. Indeed. So uh, this generates a completely new situation. Now, on on the intervention of the West, I agree completely with Mayer that anything that reeks of 1953 is still anathema to most Iranians. Mm. However, the role of the West and its agencies could be, for example, to, uh, to make the networks available to all Iranians, the, to, to prevent the regime from blocking communication via Twitter, via Facebook, via Instagram, whatever, 
We, we remember the immense role these uh, networks played in, in Egypt in 2011. And this is something that technology uh, enables the West to do. So this is going to be a very important uh, aspect of the situation when it begins to evolve, if and when it begins to evolve. We're drawing near to the end of the program, so I'd like to give each and every one of you a closing sentence and a half, if you will. Dr. Jovenanfa, we'll start with you. Where are we heading from this point? Are we expected to see an exacerbation of uh, current public unrest? Um, it is possible, but I, I also don't see, I'm not optimistic that Ayatollah Khamenei is going to make any compromise because, because of the way President Trump walked out of the nuclear deal. Look, in Iranian culture, when somebody does that to you, you're not, it's, going to, it's the other side that who has to make the compromise, not you. And I think this is, the, the, this, is the, this is basically the understanding and the logic behind Ayatollah Khamenei's current refusal to return to the nuclear deal unless the IRGC uh, is removed from the list. And also, I think the, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani has given us a new and more embittered Iranian supreme leader. And I think this makes it even more to, difficult to return to the nuclear deal. So I think there are difficult days ahead for the Islamic Republic of Iran because I think there are more and more people within the regime who want to return to the nuclear deal because it's becoming unbearable. Look, even in the city of Mashhad, they're running out of sugar, they're running out of spaghetti macaroni, which many Iranians eat, and cooking oil. But I think Ayatollah Khamenei is not ready to make that compromise. Indeed. Dr. Lehman? Well, uh, uh, Using a slogan that Ben-Gurion was fond of, we need to plan for a change in Iran as if it's certain and prepare for a way to stop the Iranian nuclear project as if it's never going to happen. You have to bear both possibilities in mind for the simple reason that there's nothing linear, and therefore you cannot expect uh, an ex internal explosion at any given moment, and the clock is ticking on a nuclear project. Former IDF uh, chief of the intelligence directorate, uh, General Hyman, uh, actually uh, in one of his speeches said that it's inevitable for the regime in Iran to collapse at some point, and uh, it should be helped. Uh, to bring about or expedite this process. Do you see this happening? Well, but as uh, Mayor said, and uh, Iran uh, too, uh, doing it uh, with outside help, bringing back uh, the specter of a Mossadegh uh, is uh, counterproductive. And probably judging by precedents, uh, not only in Iran, but around the world, we still need to wait for a Declerc or a Gorbachev. It is not going to happen as long as Khamenei is in power or alive. Indeed. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Javed Anfar, Dr. Lerman, and Mr. Oren for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.